Every single person that I know has something they, they want to change. Can you think of yours? Don't say it out loud just in case it's your spouse um, and they're sitting next to you. Um, but everybody has something they want to change. And it's no different to the person in our story today. And we pick up Mark chapter 5. Who's enjoying season 2 of the book of Mark? It's great. We're up to episode 6, I believe. And after this, we take a little, little mid-season break. A little mid-season break. So I'm just going to let you know that true to a good Netflix cliffhanger, this message comes in two parts. This is part A. And you get part B on October 22nd, I think, if my maths is correct. Yep, carry the one, amen. All right, October 22nd. In between that, in between that, we got like some specially scheduled TV for you. All right, Testimony Sunday is going to be fantastic. Uh, I have pre-heard the testimonies. Um, and that, that's so encouraging, so encouraging to hear not just what God has done, but what God is doing in people's lives, reminding us that He is currently active um, in all of our lives. Amen. Um, and then guess who's coming to dinner? Uh, be a uh, lunch. Could go, it could be extended. You might start at lunch and go into dinner. It's up to you. Uh, that's, how, that's how it was for Rachel and I on our first date. It, uh, it began as lunch. It went right through to dinner. Um, and she, she chose to miss a family gathering. She was scheduled to go out, um, which I was super, super happy about. But Mark 5, 21 to 43, here we go. It's a long passage of Scripture, but it's really good. And, and I, we, like I said, I'm going to preach this passage twice. This week and then part two, you'll have to come back for. But it starts off by saying, Jesus got into the boat again. Oh, I, I, it doesn't matter what we go through in life. Jesus will get back into your boat. Again, every time, every time, all right? Went back to the other side of the lake where a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. Do you know, Pastor Simo did an incredible job last week. What a message. If you didn't, if you didn't, if you didn't catch it, it's on, it's on our, our YouTube channel. Get on there. It was an amazing, amazing message. But if we allow ourselves to, to sort of zoom out a little bit, from Scripture right now. What we realise that, that what, we, what has occurred right now is that from the parables that he is teaching to now, he has taken the disciples from one side of the lake through a storm to the other side of the lake to free one man to turn around and go all the way back. One man. He took a boat. He took all his disciples through a storm for the sake of one man. I find that incredible. We need to understand that everything in Scripture, particularly in the Gospels, is pointing us to the good news. That Jesus will cross all the way over to the other side, all the way from heaven to earth for one man, for the one sheep. He will leave the 99 for the one. That whole story is the Gospel that he would leave the crowd, cross the water to free one person. And I don't know if you need to be reminded today, but that one person is you. 
It's me. Jesus left heaven. He left eternal existence to come to earth to rescue and free you and me. It's awesome. That's just verse one. It says, Then the leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, arrived. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him. My little daughter is dying. He said, please come and lay your hands on her and heal her so she can live. You know, there's certain circumstances in our life that draw something out of us that is different to other circumstances in our life. And there are times where perhaps we can, we can slip into cruise mode in our Christianity, but it doesn't take long for a crisis to come up that shifts us from just being kind of a part of the crowd to being the one person in the crowd, the one person on a Sunday morning that is, that is the one that is just that little bit more fervent because we've got something going on and we really need Jesus to come into our, our, our situation, our circumstance. It does, we can, but it's not meant to be like that. It's not meant to take a crisis for us to be in fervency for the Father. But we meet here Jairus. Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. Jairus, the man who is fully embedded in the system of religiosity. Jairus, the man who is in charge in maintaining uh, the systems and the function and the process of the synagogue. And it's funny, it doesn't matter how much you are embedded in a system of performance and a system of, of, of behaviours that are trying to get you into a place of, of joy and peace. It is a crisis in that moment that will teach you that those sorts of things are not enough. And here's Jairus with a little girl who's dying and his processes and his systems and his behavior and his, the way he has structured his life is no longer able. And he falls at the feet of Jesus. I love this, I love this, right? Verse 24, Jesus went with him. He went with him. And all the people followed, crowding around him. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She'd suffered a great deal from many doctors over the years. She'd spent everything that she had to pay them, but she had gotten no better. Some translations say she'd gotten worse. Oh, there you go. It's, it's, it's straight after the full stop, in fact. In fact, she had gotten worse. She had heard about Jesus. She had heard about Jesus. We're going to get onto that next week, on October 22nd. She had heard about Jesus. So she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe. For she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I, I will be healed. I don't know what was going through your mind when you came to church this morning. But there's been, there's been times in my life where I know what's going through my head if I can just, if I can just touch Jesus today. If I can just, just, just need the tiniest bit of an encounter with him. And it says that with that mindset, she reached out. Immediately, Mark's favorite word, immediately the bleeding stopped. And she could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. 
Jesus realized at once that healing power had gone out from him. And so he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my robe? His disciples looked at him. Sorry, his disciples said to him, uh, look at the crowd pressing around you. How can you ask who touched me? But he kept on looking around to see who had done it. And then the frightened woman, trembling at the realisation of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him, told him what she had done. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. While he was still speaking to her, messengers arrived from the home of Jairus. Remember, Jesus was already on the way uh, to, 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 to kind of be in, in, in operation in the life of someone else. This is, this is Jesus on the way to a really dire situation. Jesus on the way to a situation that, that someone was, was pleading fervently for him to engage in. And on the way, something happened to somebody else. Says the leader of the synagogue, they told him, your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. But Jesus overheard them and said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just have faith. Then Jesus stopped the crowd. And he wouldn't let anyone go with him except Peter, James, and John. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw much commotion and weeping and wailing. And he went inside and asked, why is all this commotion? Why is all this weeping? The child isn't dead. She's only asleep. And the crowd laughed at him. You know, we, we sometimes forget that Scripture tells us, um, and I'll get to the part in a second that builds you up, um, but we forget that Jesus says, hey, what the crowd does to you, what the crowd did to him, the crowd will do to us. And I'm acutely aware that there is a subtlety at work in our lives that tries to convince us that we can live a Christianity that is palatable. That we can live a Christianity that nobody is ever going to ridicule us for. That we can live a Christianity that no one is ever going to challenge us about. That we can live a Christianity that no one is ever going to have offence about. Even though the gospel in and of itself is an offensive gospel. That Jesus is the only way to salvation. The only way to heaven. The only way to the Father. That is offensive because it, it actually includes in, its, in its, its very statement, no other way works. We live in a, a cultural climate that would say that there is not a truth. There is your truth. And we have to remember that if we are to engage as believers in the reality of Scripture, then what we are subscribing to is a truth. And by doing that, we are stating explicitly that there is no other truth. That's going to be offensive. People are going to respond in ways that they responded to Jesus. And if we're not careful, we will convince ourselves that we can own and live a Christianity that everybody else is okay with. That nobody's going to laugh at us about or ridicule us about or maybe say really nasty things about us about. But Jesus encourages us both to, to step into his resurrection but also his suffering. 
The crowd laughed at him, but he made them all leave. You know, you can block people on social media, you can have a private account, you don't need to be open to all the public. Uh, you don't have to, you can actually make them leave. Um, he took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. Holding her hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. And the girl who was 12 years old, where's all my youth today? All two of you. You guys are amazing. Yes. Was 12 years old, immediately stood up and walked around. They were overwhelmed and totally amazed, and Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone what had happened. And then he told them to give her something to eat. Amen. Jesus is for food. That's great, right there. So I had a really funny story to tell you, um, but I'm a little short on time, so I'm going to shelve the story. I'm just going to dive right in. I want to teach you a little bit this morning on this passage, because this passage is not coincidentally two stories. Okay? What you have to understand is that Mark, and, and, and as a preaching team, we are intentionally trying to come back to this point to, to, to give you a depth of understanding of what it is that you read in Scripture. But, but Mark is sitting down years after Peter has walked with Jesus. And Mark is sitting and he is scribing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit this account of what Peter is telling him about his time with Jesus. And you've got to understand this. There's this statement that scholars use. It's called expectation of the genre. There are multiple genres of writing in the Bible. And if we go to every genre with the same framework and the same filter, we will expect it to do incorrect things. We will expect all the poetry of the Psalms to be factually accurate. But who knows that in poetry we use simile and metaphor and we use, we use beautiful imagery and we're not necessarily aiming at a factual scientific recount, we're aiming at painting a picture with words and its beauty. But if we read the Psalms, we're like, well, it says this, this, and this, so that must be factually accurate. And it's like, ah, you're missing the genre and what it's trying to do. And you're trying to read something into that genre that's not there. And, and, and so don't do it. And so we have to understand what a gospel is. There's four of them. There's four gospels, and they're all written as the same genre. That genre, okay, is called a historical biography. Now, if you're a first century writer and you are writing a first century historical biography, your main intent is not factual accuracy. Your main intent is to tell the audience about a person and what they have achieved. So historical biographies were written about all sorts of people. They were written about famous gladiators. They were written about... You can, you can go back to all these ancient manuscripts and you can read historical biographies. And they are all about telling you about the person and what they achieved. That, that is their goal. So, so what they will do is they will take stories of their life that accurately uh, add to the reader's understanding of who was this person and what did they achieve on the earth. Okay, and so what Mark is doing here is he's actually taking two separate, I mean, they could have occurred together, but most scholars recognize this, and Mark actually does it more than once in this book, okay? But he takes these two stories that when overlapped, uh, both of which occurred, 
But what they do when Mark puts them together is they help Mark, the storyteller, the person who is telling this story, he's telling this story about a person called Jesus. He's telling this story about a person called Jesus who changed the world. And so Mark is putting these two stories together because when they overlap, they give him the ability to better paint the picture of the who and the what. And those are the two primary purposes of a historical biography. Okay, so when you read in... um, in the Gospels, that there is a completely different chronological order for when Jesus cleared the tables in the temple, right? We can either see that as an issue because we're expecting the wrong thing from the genre in Scripture. We're expecting, oh, well, they should line up historically accurate because they're going to be all about the detail and everything. In this. No, that's not what they're trying to do. They will use those, the, that same story in two different ways to tell the who and the what. But the exact when is less important unless that when contributes to the who and the what, all right? So when we come to this passage, we have to ask ourselves, why did Mark put them together? Why? How many times do you ask yourself why or ask God why when you're reading the Bible? Why does this passage start with someone who's 12 years, something to do with 12 years, and finish with someone to do with 12 years? Why is it bookended with this number 12? Why is right in the middle, in between two sentences, right in the middle, the word daughter, the only time it's recorded in the New Testament? Why is that word used twice right in the center? We have to ask ourselves these questions. And we have to understand that Mark has written this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to give us the greatest picture of who Jesus was and what he did. And so the Spirit of God has inspired him to put overlap these two stories, to begin with the 12 and end with the 12. And we have to ask ourselves why. We have to ask ourselves, why is there this commonality in detail? 12, 12, daughter, daughter, sickness, sickness. Miracle, miracle. And we have to ask ourselves why or what or where is the difference? If they're the similarities, where is the difference? Because there's one key difference in this story. Do you know what the key difference in this story is? The how the miracle was worked. 12, 12, daughter, daughter, sickness, sickness. Jesus, Jesus. Miracle's different. It's outworked differently. And that is important. It's important because Mark is making it important because he's highlighting the fact that there was a difference between how these two seemingly very similar situations in other details are different. Number 12 in Scripture, okay, is actually the number that is connected to power, governance, authority, and the bringing of God's kingdom. So when we see the number 12 in Scripture, it's to do with the God-ordained authority, right? 12 tribes, of, 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 disciples, the 12 thrones, right? You will see 12 whenever it is to do with the authority and power of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. That is the number 12. And so we look at this, right, and we see... I'm going to get onto that in a second. We start with the woman with the issue of blood. The woman with the issue of blood is a picture of humanity. It's us. We are the ones with the issue of blood because our blood is, our nature 
Our nature is sinful. We are born with a sinful nature. We live on this planet with an issue in our blood. We live on this planet with an issue in our blood. The issue is sin. We are the woman with the issue of blood. Humanity is the issue. Humanity is the woman. She's had this issue for 12 years. Why? Because Scripture is really clear. Sin has authority over our lives. Before we enter a relationship with Jesus, this is sin reigns. Sin rules in our lives, and we had no power against it. We are slaves to sin. In fact, it says in Romans 6, 6 to 7, it says this. It says, we know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives, and we are no longer slaves to sin. Why are we no longer slaves to sin? Because prior to Jesus coming into our lives, we were completely slaves to sin. We were under the very authority of sin, which is why when... Mark is telling us this story. He's highlighting that this woman has had an issue in her blood for 12 years. The issue in our blood is the authority of sin over our lives and over the lives of all humanity. And it says that she spent everything she had trying to get healed. That is so true of our lives. So true of humanity. (laughs) So true of humanity. Do we not spend all of our time and effort and energy and finance trying to fix the ache that sin causes inside of us? And yet we don't get better. We get worse. Sin undealt with in our lives progressively moves towards destruction and death. That's why this story moves from a woman with an issue of blood to a daughter who's died. Because when sin comes in a fruitfulness, it leads to death. We've got to see this whole story that Mark is telling us, these two that he's meshed together under the inspiration of the Spirit, he has done so because this whole story is a snapshot of the Gospel. This whole story is telling us the whole story. This one little passage in Mark's entire story is telling the story all over again. It's telling us that we humans who had an issue in our very nature born with this sinful nature that we could do nothing about, no matter how much we spent time, energy, how much we gritted our teeth, how much we tried not to. It doesn't matter because we were slaves to this thing called sin in our lives. And that that undealt with leads to death. Romans 7, 14 to 15 says this. It says, so the trouble is not with the law for spiritual and good. The trouble is with me. For I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right. I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. I mean, I don't know about you, but that there is, there is, that's probably one of my favourite passages of Scripture is the end of Romans 7, because Paul articulates so well that the true, authentic cry of every believer's heart. I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I do want to do. You see, the law of the Israelites at the time of this writing, the law still today, I assume, indicates that a woman with a with a constant bleed, is considered to be impure. In fact, in Leviticus, it says this. It says, if a woman has a flow of blood for many days that is unrelated 
or is it to her menstrual cycle, or if the blood continues beyond the normal period, she is ceremonially unclean. As during her menstrual period, the woman will be unclean for as long as the discharge continues. And it goes on to be all, all explicit. Who's glad they don't live under the law anymore? Amen. Okay. It's probably a better like um, women's conference message, but there you go. Um, <laughs> so this woman, because she's unclean, she would have been physically outcast. Because the teaching of the Old Testament was that if you were unclean, you would make anyone and anything you touched unclean. So unclean was powerful. Unclean had authority. So if you for any way, shape or form were unclean and you touched a bed, bed's unclean. You touched a bowl, bowl's unclean. If you touched a husband, husband's unclean. And if you're unclean, you can't be around. You can't go into the temple. You can't do, you have to exclude yourself from community and society for the time period that was distinguished as you being unclean. And so this woman, who we clearly see with the issue of blood for 12 years, she would have been unclean. She would have been physically outcast. It's what sin does to us. Sin causes us to be spiritually outcast from the family of God. We are spiritually separate. Not only, not only can we not, if we wanted to, we just can't. We cannot enter in. We, we are we are considered in our sin unclean in the perfect presence of God, we can't, we, can't, we can't enter. You allow sin to do its full work in your life, and I'm telling you, it won't just be spiritually outcast, you will end up physically outcast, you will end up hurting relationships, destroying relationships. Your life and the circle around you will get smaller and smaller. And this is the difference between the law and the gospel is that the law that says that unpure is powerful and has authority. So anything that is unclean and unpure, what, what it touches becomes unpure. The gospel is the opposite. The gospel says you might be impure, you might be unclean, but the moment Jesus touches you, he's more powerful. He has more authority. So you, you don't make him unclean, he makes you clean. He makes you pure. So it doesn't matter what thoughts you've had this week. It doesn't matter what maybe you've, you've, you've been doing this week. It makes you feel like you're somehow unclean or impure. The moment Jesus touches you, you're pure. You're clean. You've been made holy and blameless in His sight. That's what Scripture says. That the moment you reach out and touch, just the, just the hem of His little robe, you don't even need like a full embrace. Just touch. You don't make him unclean. He makes you clean. He makes you clean. We go from, we go from being the outcast of society to Jesus looking at us and saying, daughter, you're not outcast from the family. I'm adopting you into the family. I'm calling you daughter when you would know yourself as outcast, as separate, as shunned. Nobody wanted an unclean person around them. Nobody wanted them anywhere near them. And Jesus says, daughter. The only time in the New Testament that we see that word is when he is attributing her status as a family member of God. Because that's the gospel. The gospel is that we are separate from the family of God through our sin, but because of Jesus, He has adopted us and welcomed us in, and now we are sons and daughters of the Most High God. 
So however you think about yourself today, however you feel about yourself today, whatever thoughts you've come into this place with, going through your mind today or yesterday or the day before, whatever you've done this week that makes you feel like you aren't worthy or you're not welcome, all of those things have to lie down to the truth of the Word of God that says you aren't just welcome, you're adopted. You can't get out of it if you tried. You're a son and a daughter of God. You are clean and pure and holy and blameless. It's amazing. And that's why they call it the good news. And so what we see is that in that moment where she reaches out, touches the hem of his garment, and Jesus is like, who touched me? There's a beautiful image that we get of what it looks like to come to Jesus. And it says in verse 33, if we can pop that back up, sorry, Chris. Verse 33, it says, The frightened woman, trembling at the realisation of what had happened to her. Who knows it can be scary to acknowledge to yourself, to God, the true state of your heart, the true nature that is within. You know what's safer? It's to pretend it's not there. It's safer to pretend that you are maybe not as broken as you know you are. It's safer to pretend that you are maybe not as impure as you like to pretend you are, aren't. It's safer. It's, it's scary to have a level of vulnerability with Jesus. Sometimes it can feel like, I'm, God, I'm a bit scared to, to talk about this space in my life. I'm, I'm frightened. What if you reject me, Jesus? What if my sin is too much, Jesus? What if, what if I, I scare myself with what's really under the surface? What if I go down there and dig that up? And, and what, happens if, what happens if that's really me? The frightened lady comes, falls on her knees in front of him. And it says, she told him what she had done. In that moment, we get a snapshot of repentance, confession, and healing. Because Jesus says this, he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. This is why to step into a relationship with with Jesus is a step of faith because your faith has made you well. The moment you took that step, the moment you took that step, your faith has made you well. Your suffering is over. So many of us live suffering under the weight of a sense of impurity, suffering under the weight of a sense of sin, of dirtiness, uncleanness. 
we suffer under the weight of the knowledge of our own proclivities, temptations, behaviours. We suffer under the weight and we don't need to because by the words of Jesus, your suffering is over. As the story continues, we get to the 12-year-old girl. She represents death, the result of sin, the wages of sin are death. Until death met Jesus. You see, we're going to land this plane on the difference because the similarity is 12, 12, sin had authority, death had authority over us. We were separated from God. We had the issue of blood in our lives. Our very nature was sinful and it was leading us to death. And without Him, we would have been that little girl who would have died. But enter Jesus. Enter Jesus. And did you see the difference in how the miracles happened? The first one. The first one, it's really important to see this because it says Jesus came into the crowd. This is the picture of Jesus leaving heaven and coming to earth. He came right down into the midst of the crowd of humanity who with all their issues and all their their, 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 their uncleanliness, He came right down into that place and He is walking through the crowd and He is just walking through. And it says in that moment, the woman who had heard about Jesus, that maybe, maybe he could end the sense of suffering. Maybe he could lift the weight that was, maybe he could do something. And it says, she reached out. Why? Because Jesus can't start a relationship with you. When you come to the gospel, He does everything. He left heaven. He came to earth. He put on flesh. He is walking amongst the crowd of humanity. And we are left with one thing to do here that it's possible and reach out and grab the hem of His garment. We don't need to even touch Him. We don't even need to get close enough. We just need the ounce, a small mustard seed of faith where we're like, I'm just going to reach. And in that moment, Mark uses the word immediately. You're clean. Immediately, the moment you say yes to Jesus, you're cleansed totally, completely. In fact, Romans says that sin now has no power over you. You You are now under no obligation whatsoever to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. Where before you knew Jesus, you really had no control. Your sinful nature was the only thing urging you and you just went along with it. But now in Christ, we have the capacity to say, ah, I'm not under any obligation to do what you want me to do. I'm free of your power. There's a greater authority in my life. There's a greater number 12 that lives over the top of my life. It's the authority of Jesus Christ. I'm no longer just of this world. I'm no longer just somebody with an issue of blood. No, because I've been born again and now I've got new blood. I've got blood that's clean and pure and powerful flowing through my veins. We've got to reach out. But when it comes to death, we couldn't do anything about death. So what does Jesus do? He reaches right through death. And he goes, that's mine. Wake up. 
come back to life. And this story, this accumulation of everything Mark has been telling us about Jesus. Because Jesus taught us these parables. He's trying to teach us about the kingdom. And then Mark shifts gears. Remember, it's, it's not chronological, right? These parables could have been all over the three years of Jesus. Mark puts them together because Mark's like, here's the teaching. And now I'm going to give you the demonstration. Here's Jesus with an authority over the storm. He has authority over creation. And here's Jesus with authority over the demonic. And now you know what follows that. Here's Jesus. He has all authority over sin in your life. And finally, He has all authority over death. There is not one thing that Jesus does not have authority over in your life. There is not one thing that can stand up and say, ah, you can't get free of me. No, you can get free of it because Jesus has already set you free. It's only that you don't believe it in your heart because it feels so real. The truth is you're free. And our wrestle is more about how we apply the truth than whether it's truth. Our wrestle is do I really believe the truth that says I am free of that? I am a new creation, therefore my nature is new. So everything I think and feel has to submit to the truth that I have actually been born again. I have a completely new nature. I have completely new uh, like, like spiritual DNA flowing through my veins. Everything else has to come under that. And so I don't know what you feel is sitting on you today. I don't know what sin, you feel like you just can't seem to get free of? What thoughts that you just can't seem to triumph over? What thing it is in your life that makes you think that you're not worthy? I'm here to tell you this morning, it doesn't get a say because of Jesus. For all of you that have a relationship with Jesus, for everyone who's watching online, if you have a relationship with Jesus, there is not one sin, there is not one behavior, there is not one sickness, and there is not one anything that has power over your life that He has not set you free from. So I really want to pray for some people this morning. I want to pray for some people, maybe for, for those of you that are, are not in a relationship with Jesus Christ. There is a difference between attending church. There's a difference between attending table space and having a living, breathing, life-transforming relationship with Jesus Christ. And the shift is so simple. It's so simple. It just looks like a reach from your heart that says, yes. And immediately, immediately, it says, power left Jesus. That's His cleansing power. It's His forgiving power. 
That's a transaction that takes place in a realm that we are so unaware of, where it says that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We can't immediately, we become completely righteous, completely clean, pure, and whole. We might not feel it, but that doesn't matter because that's the truth. That's the truth. So maybe that's you this morning and for the first time, you want to reach out. Maybe you're here, maybe you're online. I'm just going to ask that every head for a moment, just just bow our heads, close their eyes for a second. If that's you, and you're like, you know what, I've actually... It feels, like, it feels like years. This lady had been 12 years with an issue of blood. It feels like years. I've been wrestling. I've been striving. I've been struggling. Spending all my time, all my energy trying to fix me. And the truth is, I, I actually don't think I have a real relationship with Jesus. And this morning, you want to know without a shadow of a doubt And I'm going to encourage you to reach out. I'm going to encourage you to reach out a hand as a, as a symbol of reaching out from your heart with a yes. Yes, I want, I want Jesus. I know, uh, maybe you don't even know what that's going to mean to you. Maybe, you. maybe you're so early in this journey, but something in you is like, I want, I want that, I want that, I want, I want Jesus. I'm going to pray a prayer right now. And when I say amen, if that's you, I just want you to reach out. I just want you to lift your hand. People are going to keep their eyes closed. Father, for every person this morning that is feeling in their heart that they want you, they want everything that you have done for them, They want forgiveness and freedom and life. And God, I thank you that all we have to do is reach, believe in our heart, say yes with our mouth. So for every person that's considering that right now, I pray for a boldness and a faith in Jesus' name. Amen. If that's you, why don't you just reach your hand up if you're online this morning, you can actually do a raise hand thing online. Letting our online, who's hosting this morning? Leah is hosting. She is on there. She's waiting to pray for you if that's you. For everyone else this morning who's here, in Romans 7, 18 to 19 says this. As I know that nothing good lives in me. That's pretty discouraging. It is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. That, that's a mindset that needs the truth of Jesus. Many people, uh, many scholars believe that Paul is writing this to explain to the Romans the true shift from before salvation to after salvation. He's trying to teach them And he says, I want to do what is right, but I can't. 
I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't do what I want to do. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. You know, other scholars, they take the other side and they say, Paul's actually just writing about the reality of living as a believer. That we might absolutely be born again, but we still totally wrestle with that sinful nature. And we all live with areas that we feel as if we cannot break free of. Areas in our thinking, areas in our speech, areas in our behaviour. It's as if that particular sinful nature just has a grip on us that we can't get out of. He says, I love God's law with all my heart. But there's another power within me. There's a war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. I told you you'd be encouraged. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Well, Mark knows. Mark knows who's going to free you. Because Mark just told us who freed the woman with the issue of sin and who freed the little girl with the issue of death. Who's here to free us from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Verse 25, probably the greatest verse in all of Scripture. Thank God the answer is Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you see how it is in my mind? I really do want to obey God's law. But because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. You know, for some people here this morning, I firmly believe you need to have a moment where just like the woman, you come before Jesus and you acknowledge that there is an area in your life that you are struggling to break free from. And you need to be reminded of the very truth that Jesus has actually already set you free. It's a done deal. It is just, it's just a deception that says that you aren't free. You are free. And the power to live free is in connecting with the Holy Spirit, allowing Him to fill you afresh this morning. I'm telling you, I've seen time and time again in my life, things I thought I was stuck in, believed I was stuck in, struggled in my own strength to get free of, only to get worse in those areas. It wasn't until I actually let the truth of Jesus and what He has done for me get into that part of my life that I began to walk out freedom. The truth comes in an instant, the immediately of Mark, and we walk out 